History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge? Find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. My name is Brian Weir and I'm here in the HHE studio with the silk purse to my sow's ear. It's Mr. Peter Goddard. Well, that's very self-effacing of you, Ryan. I'm a very self-effacing guy. Rightly so. <laughs> now, Peter, last week the Derzelator gave us cutting corners in Cape Verde during 1990 to 1995. So, with a topic like cutting corners, have you gone all out with a 100% professional and fact-packed episode, or can we expect a low-budget scrimp and scrape, like usual? Fighting words. Well, actually, Ryan, we're going to Africa, past the very edge of the continent, to discover a cluster of islands basking in the Pacific. We're going to learn about music, including the mournful mourner and the fun funana, and we're going to discover the inspirational revolutionary who is now an international airport. We're going to the land early man forgot welcome to Cabo Verde well Peter I am super excited Cape Verde how did you pronounce it Cape Verde well uh, this is my first fact one Cape Verde is not called Cape Verde at all (laughs) Okay, what's it called? It is officially the Republic of Cabo Verde. Cabo Verde. Which is Portuguese for Cape Verde, in fairness. And it was and is widely known as Cape Verde. But in fact, the island in 2013 decided to change its English name at the United Nations to Cabo Verde. So the official English name is still, even in short form, Cabo Verde, which has always been a Portuguese name. But I'm going to try and call it Cabo Verde all the way through. Although I will slip sometimes because I've spent a long time calling it Cape Verde in my research. I like it. Cabo Verde. It's much more exciting. It does sound more exotic and exciting, doesn't it? And Mm. exotic and exciting it is. But let me get you oriented in space. Yes, please. We're going to start in West Africa. You know, the bulge, uh, the top of the African continent on the left-hand side. About halfway down that bulge, uh, where Senegal is and the Gambia. If you start on the coast there and strike out west into the ocean for about 570 kilometres or 350 miles, you will, with a fair wind, hit a cluster of islands, an archipelago. And that archipelago is Cabo Verde. I had no idea. I thought it was closer to, you know, the actual coastline. No, it's quite a ways out, actually. It's quite spread out as well, but it's made of 10 different islands. And according to different websites, there are a number of possibly five, possibly eight islets. Now, we've had the the problem of what's an island before on this podcast, haven't we? So (laughs) I thought I'd better read up on what is an islet as opposed to an island. Yeah, yeah. And the website worldlandforms.com tells me that islet landforms have three main characteristics. Okay. A very small island, little or no vegetation, and cannot support people living there. So basically, if it's basically a glorified rock, it's an islet. If you've got a few people living on it or a sufficient vegetation, probably an island. All right. So 10 islands are the main event. In fact, one of the 10 islands is uninhabited but I guess it's big enough to qualify for island status and the islands are apparently quite different there's some mountainous rocky islands and there's some more flatter aridy landscapes in other islands and they say that if you're a tourist you can have quite a different holiday depending on which island you pick to visit that's amazing I had no idea yeah it's do you want to hike in the mountains do you want to sit on a beach do you want to visit the historic centres you have to travel to a different island to do each one of those and that's not particularly easy because there's quite a big distance between these islands you'll be travelling for substantial times if you put all 10 islands together you've got about 4,000 square kilometers one and a half thousand square miles which means you need about 137 Cape Verdes to make one France. Okay it's more than I thought it would be. Yeah it's also bearing in mind it's an archipelago so it's total area to get from one end to the other is much bigger because that's just its land area Mm. so traveling around isn't quite as simple as the geography suggests there Mm. but it also has a correspondingly small population there's about 600,000 people there which is about the size of uh, the city of Baltimore in the US or Glasgow in the UK. That's still quite a lot of people, isn't it? 600,000. Like, if you had 600,000 people chasing you down a street, you'd know about it. You would, but I think you'd do well to annoy 600,000. Well, you might manage it. <laughs> Thinking about it, this is a plausible fear for you. <laughs> it is, yeah. I wonder if that's got a name, the fear of being chased down a street by a group of people. There is no exact term for the fear of being chased down a street by a large group of people. However, A medical diagnosis might potentially categorize this fear under enoptophobia, which is the clinical term for fear of crowds, combined with clithrophobia or scopophobia, the fear of being pursued.
Thank you. Um, But over half the population actually live on the one island called Santiago. That's the largest island and it's home to the nation's capital of Praia. Praia? P-R-A-I-A. So not like Richard? No, no. It's more like the Portuguese equivalent of the Spanish playa. Playa. Okay. So the languages spoken are Portuguese. This is going to give you some clues as to where we're going later. Portuguese! (laughs) (laughs) I always learn a new word when I'm researching the podcast. I learned that that makes it part of the Lusophone world. So Lusophone are Portuguese-speaking countries. So Portuguese is one of the languages, and the other language is Cape Verdean Creole. So this is a, a Creole language, which is a sort of evolved, combined language. What's the percentage? of those? I think most people speak both of them rather than it be a split between one Uh, and the other. So historically, obviously, the Portuguese language would be the language of the coloniser and the Creole would be the language of the man on the street, if you will. Yeah, okay. So it's about 85% Christian, the vast majority of those being Roman Catholic. That's that Portuguese influence once again. And I think we should listen to a national anthem, don't you? I mean, I'd love to, yeah. This is called Cantico da Liberdade, the chant of freedom. Yeah, it's the old strung out the gates, brass band. <laughs> it's cheery, isn't it? I like this one. This is on my list of acceptable anthems. So this was actually made official in 1996. That's really recent. Yeah, I might just always. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. a little bit of both. This replaced Esta e a Nossa Patria Bem Amada, which was their previous national anthem. But that was also the national anthem of Guinea Bissau. This is a nation they have really close links to. So they shared an anthem until 96 when this was then adopted. Did you go about sharing a national anthem? I mean, it's your national anthem. Well, it comes with a shared history, and we'll learn a bit about that later. Oh, that's a good peak. I like that. Here we go. Come on, finish it off. Symbols. Bring it home. Yeah. That was great. I just thought I'd share one line of the lyrics for you because I rather liked it. Hope is as big as the sea which embraces us. Wow, that's great. How poetic. Isn't it? So that music is by Adalberto Higino Tavares Silva and the lyrics are by Amilcar Spencer Lopez and both of those guys are still alive today if you want to commission an HHE national anthem. Which I do. (laughs) I don't know what their prices are or how old they are, but who knows? Look into that. I pretty much guess what it'd sound like. (laughs) There's going to be those trilling drums in there for sure. (laughs) Now the flag. Let's talk flags. The flag is also relatively new this was adopted in 1992 and it's a blue flag and about a third of the way up from the bottom there's three stripes of white red and white again and the symbolism of that is as is common the blue is the sea and the sky which surround the island nation obviously the band of red and white represents the road to the future consisting of peace which is the white and effort the red and then over this there's a circle of 10 gold stars a little bit like the stars on the eu flag and those 10 stars represent each of the islands of the country oh okay i like that it's quite a complicated flag though isn't it there's a lot going on it's interesting it's a mm. really nice one actually you, it, it would definitely stand out in like a, a crowd of flags yeah i do i'm a i'm a big fan of it and it's also on my acceptable list so cabo verde have done well but i guess they've adopted both of these things relatively recently so they're allowed, they've been able to look at everyone else's versions and go let's take the best of all these i always think a good flag would be one that i'd be happy to have as a beach towel <laughs> And I think theirs is a decent beach towel. I think that passes the beach towel test. It does, for sure. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you ready for some Cabo Verde facts? Always. Well, here's the thing. You can find a surprising number of people, given there aren't that many Cabo Verdeans, you can find a surprising number of them, or people have descended from the people of Cabo Verde, in New England on the northeast coast of the United States. Okay, is this a slavery thing? No, no, it isn't actually. So uh, I found one 1983 article that said 16,000 people of Cape Verdean descent live in New Bedford, Massachusetts. So that's a really weirdly specific thing. So why is that, right? <laughs> it's a very specific place. Well, here's the thing. New Bedford, Massachusetts was the kind of whaling capital of the United States. Okay. And where the Cape Verde Islands were, A, they're very sea-affiliated people, mm. being an island nation. 
And they're also a convenient stopping off point for the transatlantic trade and also for whaling. So whalers would come around to the islands. People who needed work would join the whalers and they would find their way back to this place, New Bedford in Massachusetts. So you ended up with this really big, disproportionately large Cape Verdean population there. Wow. And they thought, should I stay on my beautiful tropical islands or should I stay in Massachusetts? And we will find out more about why that seemed like a good idea. Okay. <laughs> it is clearly a good idea. So in fact, in, even today, expat Cabo Verdeans are a major demographic for the country. So the International Organization for Migration said the number of Cabo Verdeans living abroad today is estimated to be double the number of domestic residents. Oh. So it's got a much bigger population overseas than it does at home, essentially. That makes me think of Ireland, which also has a large population abroad. Yeah. So the need for people to go away for work is so significant, it's actually catered for in the country's constitution. So normally people abroad aren't allowed to vote in elections. So Cabo Verdeans, though not living in Cabo Verde, are allowed to vote as long as they can demonstrate they still have a connection to the country. So there's a number of things like you're working away or you're in the military, which are fairly normal. But also one of the stipulations is if you have or are you providing for a child or a spouse or an older relative residing in the country. So basically, if you're overseas to work to look after someone else, that is a link as well. Mm-hmm. So you are still allowed to vote in election. Right. But what's really interesting is if you had double the population who weren't even living in the country voting, that vote would kind of swamp the, the local vote, if you will. So Instead of saying what normally happens, which is you vote in the place you most recently lived or the place you grew up or your place of origin, if you will, they actually have three constituencies representing overseas Cabo Verdeans. So there's two seats to represent Cabo Verdeans in Africa, two seats for Cabo Verdeans in the Americas, and two seats for Cabo Verdeans in Europe and the rest of the world. So they're represented, but as Cabo Verdeans abroad rather than actually voting in their original constituencies. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I wonder if there's any real differences in which way their policy politics leans depending on where they're based you have to wonder don't you so and i think that's quite possibly why they set it up that way because i suspect people who aren't living in a country have a rather different perspective on it than the ones who do yeah quite yeah and i wonder what the difference between an african american and a european sounds like a joke but um, (laughs) what they what they have an African, a European, and American Cabo Verdean go into a voting booth. <laughs> yeah. And have a whale of a time. Because uh, of the whales. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah. Save it for the sketches, man. Save it for the sketches. <laughs> That's the gold. Now, the island has a NASA connection that you might be surprised by. Of course it does. The Amilcar Cabral International Airport was a designated emergency landing site for the space shuttle. So if it came down rather unexpectedly, right. this was one of the places they'd allocated for an emergency stop. Oh, that's very cool. I'd just land there anyway. I'd be, oh no, we had an emergency. I've got to land at this beautiful place. (laughs) Shocking. What a a shame. Oh no, don't rush to pick us up. Also, rather less pleasingly, the nation gives its name to a type of hurricane. A Cape Verde hurricane is one that originates in the area of Cape Verde, and then they basically generally head out across the Atlantic. And because there's such a long stretch of open water between the islands and landfall, which would be either the Caribbean or North America, it kind of doesn't dissipate through that massive journey. So when they finally hit land, apparently they're super powerful and uh, some of the more intense hurricanes that you can get. Goodness. The island of Boa Vista is the island nearest continent Africa. And in the northwestern part of that island is a place called the Viana Desert. It's a little desert. It's just a few kilometres across. Mm-hmm. And it's believed to be made of sand that has blown across from the Sahara. <laughs> no way. <laughs> so I guess sand blows across, it catches on the island and makes a little desert. It's got little dunes and everything. That's amazing. Just a couple of kilometres. <laughs> I'm lost. Dear God, somebody save us. <laughs> so thirsty. Oh, there's a cafe. <laughs> <laughs> and it does just sound like a beach. Yeah, it is. I don't think I you say i don't think there's risk to life and limb of getting lost in there but uh, if you don't like desert you can also have a volcano the island of fogo has pico de fogo the nation's highest peak and a volcano that goes up to 2829 meters 9281 feet above sea level that's not small it's not small and it's lively it erupted in 1995 and 2014 oh wow but still 46,000 people live on this island which when i looked at aerial pictures this island is largely volcano well, yeah. it's not an island with a volcano <laughs> attached it is 
basically a volcano with a bit of island attached. Uh, there are even two small villages, Portella and Bangaria, located in the caldera, in the actual cone of the volcano. The When it erupts, it erupts from the sides now, I guess. So right. the main central cone, the caldera, it's not like it's actually open to lava. I guess the when it has erupted, it's been sort of bursting out from the sides of the volcano rather than just slapping up through the middle. I'd love to dip a stick in some magma. Well, we'll put that on your bucket list to see if we can find you a, a active volcano. Just poke to... I just want to see what the consistency is. Well, let's go lava poking. <laughs> lava poking. Do people offer lava poking tours? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Have you got 75 eggs? 75 eggs? What do you need them for? Well, I'm making 300 pancakes. 300 pancakes? What for? Well, I'm starting a business in Cape Verde. Pancakes in Cape Verde? Yeah, I'm going to call it Crepe Verde. Oh, actually, that's pretty good. What kind of crepes are you making? Oh, you know, all kinds. Mint, pistachio, avocado, broccoli, uh, peas... Kale, cabbage. Ryan, Ryan, Ryan. Are all your pancakes green stuff? Yeah. Well, verde means green, so I'm just sort of sticking to the theme. Oh, but Ryan, that, that, those are terrible flavours. Who wants broccoli pancakes? People want chocolate, strawberries, bananas, just delicious things. Yeah, but none of those are all green. Oh, Ryan, you're wasting your time here. Yeah, well, OK. I've got other ideas too, though. All right, let's hear them. Grape verde. Which is... Wine. Oh, that sounds all right, actually. Yeah, made with broccoli. Oh, disgusting. Steak verde. Is it rotten meat? Absolutely. Oh, God. Drape Verde? Green curtains. Look, these are all terrible ideas, right? Oh, really? Well, next you're going to be telling me I shouldn't dye a bunch of monkeys green. Oh, my God. It's not Ape Verde, is it? Yep. Ryan, you're an idiot. Snake Verde? Okie dokie, Peter. So, you've told me all there is to know about uh, Cape Verde today, but I wish to know something about its past. Tell me its history. When it comes to history, Cabo Verde really cut some corners. <laughs> Basically, what happened in Cabo Verde is they just bypassed early man altogether. No early man. Well, there must have been an early man. No, as far as we know, the islands were uninhabited until the arrival of Europeans. Wow, okay. So they were the earliest man. They were. So we basically bypassed the usual thousands of years of history <laughs> and we go straight to, guess who? Portuguese. The Portuguese. They were the first ones there. Well, they were the first ones to live there. Okay. There may have been visitors. It's quite likely that other people had at some point visited these islands. So in the 1400s, there was a prince of Portugal named Henry the Navigator. I I, I bet I know what he does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's not his real name. It is a nickname. Didn't actually do any exploring himself, but he sponsored a lot of voyages, including three ships that in 1456 discovered a few of the islands that are now Cabo Verde. Now, seven years later, quick off the mark, these guys, in 1462, a bunch of Portuguese showed up with a flag, a supply of sandwiches and enough kit to set up a new permanent settlement on the island of Sao Tiago. So they created a settlement in a place called Ribeira Grande. This is on the northern coast of the northernmost island, and this was actually the first permanent European settlement city in the tropics. In the tropics? Yeah. It must have been kind of cool turning up, you know, as the first European. You're probably used to turning up on various islands and stuff and getting confronted by the local natives. And here they turned up, absolutely no one there. It must have been great. Yeah, it's certainly made life a little bit easier in some ways, although, of course, there's reasons there's no one there at that point. Mm. But yeah, this was the first European settlement, and you can still visit it today. In 2009, this city became a UNESCO World Heritage Site and also one of the seven wonders of Portuguese origin in the world, which apparently is a thing. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's a thing. That sounds like something someone's made up. <laughs> it's very specific, isn't it? So these islands, they haven't got a ton on them, as we've discussed, but they are in a good location if you happen to be an explorer. So Vasco da Gama and Ferdinand Magellan both stopped off here. And it's also a good stopping off point for traders. Now, not the great trade, not let's trade silks for for other fun stuff it's mm. this, the slave trade between west africa and the new world and later on whaling as well so a bit of a grim trading history but uh, its location made it a good stopping off point so settlements start to pop up and the islands actually prosper for a while in the 1500s these riches actually start to attract the attentions of pirates and privateers of course they do 
Well, of course, right? These guys have got cash and they're easy to access by boat. I've got a boat. <laughs> yeah. Let's go check it out. Yeah. One of such person being Sir Francis Drake, who first sacked Riviera Grande in 1582, and he kept coming back for more, basically. Yeah, well, no one's going to stop him. Pirate police went around then. No, indeed. Uh, they did have other pirates. Now, Algerian Corsairs, Corsairs being, I guess, Muslim pirates, basically, set up a base, actually, on the islands in the 17th century. But it always has this connection to travel and trade and the sea. So this going back to the people joining whaling ships. By 1740, the island was basically a supply point for American slave ships and whalers. But then the other things that are happening throughout this time and really up to very recently is the islands get hit regularly with droughts and famines. And this is a periodic thing that keeps happening in these islands. So this is partly why you never had people settled for a long time, I think, potentially. Okay. So it was never great for sustaining human life. There wasn't anyone there when the Europeans arrived. Uh, and that was made worse by the arrival of the Europeans who deforested the place, overgrazed it as well. So it was even harder to sustain things in the soil as it was, was depleted. But yeah, droughts were a significant problem in the country. In the 18th and 19th centuries, droughts accounted for well over 100,000 people starving to death. I mean, that's not a small amount. That's a lot of people in a not a massively populated island. So to go back to your conversation about similarities with Ireland, where there was the potato famine that yeah. caused a lot of people to have to leave. Similar, this famine and hardship was causing Cabo Verdeans to become international people, effectively. Okay. So the islands largely keep to themselves. They're a stopping off point. But uh, every now and then the rest of the world would pop by. On 16th of April, 1781, there was the Battle of Porto Praia, which took place off modern day Praia. This is notable for, to me because it doesn't feature Portugal at all. It was a naval battle between Britain and France. Oh, what so, were they doing there? <laughs> well, I, I think the British were parked up in the port and the French went, oh, let's get them. Oh. Uh, and so a fight ensued. I guess the Cabo Verdeans and Portuguese were like, oh, OK, we'll just leave them to it. <laughs> now, the 19th century sees the decline of the slave trade, which you have to argue is a good thing. But it is also bad news for the Cape Verdean economy, which is dependent on it to some extent. And this, again, is more hardship that causes Cape Verdean, particularly men, to start heading off for work in substantial numbers, joining the whaling ships. Slavery was abolished on Cape Verde itself in 1878 but again it's still a, a good location it's as it becomes a, a resupply point for transatlantic shipping in World War II although Portugal remained neutral allied ships would station in the port of Mindelo they had another period of famine in this time and again thousands of people died during World War II totally unrelated to the war so they managed to avoid war but it wasn't a great time nevertheless mm. so they didn't get a lot of help from the motherland so Port they were a Portuguese colony and they felt they were not getting the support they needed as people were clearly dying and also, post-World War II, we've seen across the world this rise in independence movements. Cabo Verde was quite distinctive as part of a Portuguese colony because it was more literate than most Portuguese colonies. They had about 25% literacy rate, whereas in mainland Africa, it's probably closer to 5%. And we'll talk a bit more about how that is. But in 1956, there was a man named Amelcar Cabral. He gets together with a bunch of friends and forms the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde, snappily known as PAIGC. And this is a joint independence movement with Guinea Bissau in West Africa. So they have a single independence movement between the islands of Cabo Verde and the Portuguese Guinea on the mainland of West Africa. So Portugal at this time is a right-wing dictatorship, actually. So a bit more resistant to letting its colonies go. So it's a bit behind the curve, as it were, on the independence tip. And in 1972, they granted some autonomy, but it still wasn't independence. So they were quite determined at the dictatorship of Portugal to hang on to their colonies. But in 1974, there was the Carnation Revolution in Portugal, which overthrew that dictatorship. And that changed everything. Within a year, basically all of the colonies were gone. And for Cabo Verde, that meant they get to declare their independence on the 5th of July, 1975. Wow, well, good for them. But they still kept Portuguese heritage. Yes, they're still substantially Portuguese. And uh, we're going to learn a bit about how they, they are demographically different to other Portuguese colonies in a little bit. But uh, they become independent. As I say, they remain quite stable. They don't have what we've seen in other nations where it's descended into civil war or anything like that. They maintain a uh, reasonably stable government up until this day, really. So uh, in 2013, US President Barack Obama said Cape Verde is a real success story. And as for the future, an International Monetary Fund review from January this year said the economic outlook is positive but subject to risks. 
So, good luck, Cabo Verde. I mean, genuinely, it does sound good, doesn't it? It is a bit of a success story. It is. It's really uh, encouraging. It's always a a bit sad when we have to do African nations and you see the damage that colonial activities did and the history of slavery and uh, the trauma that these countries go through. Cabo Verde didn't, it wasn't immune to that by any means, but they have a a much happier post-colonial story, I think. Yeah, I think it helps being off the mainland. Yeah, certainly. I think there's, well, there's a bunch of things that helped, actually, and we'll talk a little bit about them when we come into the later sections you're such a tease you've got to tune in for the next bit <laughs> ah professor higgins come in come in uh, look we must discuss your recent archaeological expedition to cape verde well yes of course dean lot to unpack from the ship if you'll excuse the pun indeed and unpack we shall your research grant was substantial and the university expects results Well, absolutely, of course. Well, I have been going through your expense report, and I must say, it's intriguing. Well, they're all necessary expenses for our research, I assure you. Right, so four Hawaiian shirts, two pairs of sunglasses, sunscreen, and a beach umbrella, all necessary for an archaeological dig, are they? Well, you know fieldwork, you know the importance of integrating with local culture, protecting oneself from the harsh sun. This is all part of fieldwork, isn't it? And the scuba lessons? Well, that was important for protecting underwater excavations. I see. Well, let's talk about your findings then, shall we? What evidence have you brought back? Oh, well, I'm delighted to show you. Professor, these look like chicken and rib bones. Do they? Yes, with barbecue sauce on them. Well, it's fascinating, isn't it? A testament to early man's culinary skills, really. Professor, you didn't just take a vacation, did you? No, no, no. I assure you, all the beach volleyball, the cocktail, the research, it was all very, very necessary. Well, it seems clear to me that we need to fund more research, you know, to really dive into these findings. Oh, right. Well, yes, I couldn't agree more. And of course, it's crucial that someone oversee the research firsthand, you know, ensure that everything is uh, above board. So uh, I'll have to come along this time. Well, absolutely, sir. I wouldn't expect anything else. I look forward to our rigorous research on the beaches. I mean, the historical sites of Cape Verde. Pack a towel. So, cutting corners, Ryan. Yeah, cutting corners. Well, this was defined by the first website I found as to do something in the easiest, cheapest or quickest way, often by ignoring rules or leaving something out. Okay, I'm I'm worried what you're going to do. <laughs> <laughs> now, clearly, this has a literal sense. Why go to the end of the road and turn left when you can just cut straight across the corner and save yourself some time? That's what I do. That's what you do. Yeah. Yeah. Are... I hop over people's fences, run across their lawn, hop over the next fence and then I'm away. Save myself two minutes. You are a monster. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) But obviously this has a metaphorical use as well for sloppiness, taking the easy way out or missing steps in doing things. I did find one early documented use of the phrase from 1863 in the Oxford Magazine and Church Advocate. Makes sense. So they say, set one man to go to a place four miles off by the road, set another to go a shortcut across the fields and ten to one the man on the road gets there first. So there's this sense that cutting corners has a cost. It's not just everything gets better and it's easier. There's a there's problems associated with cutting corners. It's not just being efficient. But I put it to you, it's not necessarily a bad thing to cut corners. In fact, the cutting of corners is also sometimes referred to as desire paths. So these are shortcuts. So when you go to the park and you see the path and then there's another path kind of parallel and then you see a dirt track where everybody is walking from one path to the other. I've seen those. Yeah. So those are known as a desire path. So they kind of give you valuable information. It shows where people really want to walk, essentially. Right. And these are quite valuable for some people. So there's an architect and urban planner called Ricardo Marini and he said of desire path, desire lines present evidence about movement, which is important. So you might set a path that goes from corner to corner of the park but if people want to go through the bush over there they will do so and then (laughs) that will tell you that perhaps you need to change the design of your park and the way you've set your paths out practically speaking in some i think it was finland the town planners wait for the snow and then they monitor the paths in the snow to see how people are walking in various areas so they can see the sort of most efficient or the most desirable way to move across the space better snow than concrete and tarmac you gotta wait a long time to see that through that yeah minimal investment and you can say oh okay so basically left to given a blank sheet of park Mm. people will walk in these ways Mm. and then you can align your paths to fit those which i think is quite a clever idea but whatever you think of it whether it's a good or a bad thing there will be corners cut in this episode right <laughs> okay have you yeah, halved the some... budget 
<laughs> it is uh it's it's down to zero ryan <laughs> so yes that is half what it was before <laughs> welcome back to daytime live today we have the pleasure of meeting gary gibbons author of the bestseller Cutting Corners, a revolutionary self-help book that promises to help you get twice as much done in half the time. Welcome, Gary. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Tracy. Thanks for having me. So tell us, Gary, what inspired you to write Cutting Corners? Well, Tracy, I've always believed that time is our most precious commodity, and I wanted to share my wisdom on how to save it along with money and energy. Fascinating. Could you share one of your popular corner cutting techniques? Well, sure thing. One example is my recipe for instant coffee. I discovered that if you just swallow a handful of coffee beans and then back it up with a gulp of hot water, you save time brewing coffee and washing up. Well, I must say, that's certainly innovative. Uh, any other tips? Oh, absolutely. During the phase when I was living in my car, a great way to cut housing costs, by the way, I discovered that you can save on laundry by simply rotating your clothing inside to out and backwards to forwards. That way you get four wears per garment. Well, that is a unique perspective on laundry. Uh, your techniques are certainly unorthodox. Well, convention never cut any corners, Tracy. Like the time I realised you can save on expensive gym memberships by simply rubbing bacon grease on your legs and then strangers' dogs will chase you around the park. It's not just a great workout, but it's also a fantastic way to engage with the community. Well, I, I can see why the book has caught people's attention. It's clear you've put a lot of work into it. Well, not really. I didn't actually write the book. Uh, I beg your pardon? Well, it's cutting corners. I, I didn't write it. I got AI to write it for me. So you cut corners in writing a book on cutting corners? Exactly so. I just wanted to get on national television. So I cut corners making a book about cutting corners. I just wanted a shortcut to where I am now, chatting with Tracy on Daytime Live. Hello, Mum. Hello, everyone. Ladies and gentlemen. The epitome of cutting corners, Gary Gibbons. Hello, guys. Right, Ryan, let's talk about the road to democracy. Yeah, please. Our time period is 1990 to 1995. And within that period, something very important happened in Cabo Verde. In 1991, Cabo Verde held their first multi-party democratic elections. The very first ones. Uh, it was a very long road to this burgeoning democracy, and in no small part, it came down to the work of a man called Amilcar Cabral. Right. Uh, he was born actually in Portuguese Guinea. This is the nation in nearest nation in West Africa, basically. But he was born to Cabo Verdean parents. Now, one of the features of Portuguese colonies at the time is the people of Cabo Verde had a slightly different status to the rest of what I will call Portuguese Africa. And that's because in Cabo Verde, there was an unusual amount of mixing and a very large community developed of children of mixed ethnicity from African and European parents. And you can see the effect of this even today. So in Guinea-Bissau, which is a country in West Africa, 1% of the population is of mixed African native and Portuguese descent. 1%. Just one, okay. In Cabo Verde, it's 69%. Wow, that's a lot. Right? So basically, this gave the island a relatively elevated status. They developed a much larger kind of, I would say, I would say middle class of these people of mixed descent. You know, it was still an ethnically split country. It's Portuguese colony, so it wasn't uh, free for all and uh, love and equality for everyone but there was a very large community of people who have mixed parentage and consequently it also was treated by portugal as a kind of a more prestigious colony if you like part of that is they there was more education there we talked about the literacy rate being much higher in cabo verde than other parts of portuguese africa and one of the consequences of this was frequently people of cabo verde would be used as kind of middle management in other colonies as well so you had lighter skinned people actually from Cabo Verde functioning as uh, management, if you will, in other areas of uh, Portuguese Africa. And this was part of a more general attempt to divide and rule by the Portuguese, who were elsewhere also leveraged tribal divisions. So they did like to pit people against each other to prevent them rising up in unity. So you had this situation as a Cabo Verdean, you were kind of resented in some senses by people in the other parts of Portuguese Africa, but you also weren't treated as a, an equal by the people of Portugal. Okay, so anyway, stuck in the middle. Exactly. So there's a divided cocktail. There's tribal divisions 
happens within Portuguese Africa. There's Cabo Verde is a kind of providing of this management layer of, of mixed race people. And into this enter Amilcar Cabral. He was a Cabo Verdean uh, born in Guinea-Bissau. So he's already crossing those lines, joining people up. And so he's kind of the embodiment of the opposite of that divide and conquer. He was a man who was all about unity. And he believed in unity and togetherness in a very profound way. Uh, he went to Portugal to study agronomy. So he's an educated man. What's agronomy? Agronomy is agricultural management. Ah, okay. And he took a posting in Guinea-Bissau. So he quickly became a leading figure in Guinea-Bissau in the independence movement. So actually, he set up the PAIGC. This is the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde. So right from the get-go, he was about unifying these two places. These two people have a common problem, which is the colonisation by the Portuguese. And he founded this party with a bunch of other people. It started out as a non-violent movement where they protested and uh, I guess wrote letters and waved placards. But the Portuguese government did not get the non-violence memo. In 1959, the Portuguese, who I'll remind you, were under a right-wing dictatorship, support a dock workers' strike. The Portuguese secret police arrive and open fire, basically. 25 people are killed in what becomes known as the Pijigiji Massacre. The Pijigiji. The Pijigiji Massacre. How many people were killed? 25 people were killed. Wow. Okay. Just for peacefully protesting. There is a rabid fear of communism and the left in general across the colonies at this time. Mm. So this event makes it clear to Amilcar Cabral and the PAIGC that they, they have to take up arms. Violence is the only way you respond to violence with violence. So they did. They trained their people. In military skills, they got weapons supplied by China, Cuba, and the Soviet Union, amongst other uh, and other African nations as well. And they basically go to war. There's a war of independence starts in Guinea-Bissau, and Cabral turns out to be as good a military leader as he was a revolutionary thinker. He, they make significant gains. They control quite big areas of the Portuguese Guinea. Well, I suppose they had the element of surprise, right? Nobody was expecting them to take up arms, right? And I'm guessing they were doing that in secret. Well, there's a, there's a number of factors. One is that they they're just weren't that many Portuguese soldiers there in the first place. So at the start, it's a pretty big place and it's quite rural. So what happened was, as well as training their people in the military tactics and skills, they also trained their people to go around and sort of win over the hearts and minds of the people in the country. So the PAIGC representatives would go out to villages and uh, they had a whole approach, actually, that rather than lecturing people and going, oh, we're here to tell you that you're being exploited, they were trained to have a kind of Socratic dialogue to actually get the people to really realised they were being exploited by their own deduction rather than just hectoring and lecturing people. So they, they, there's a bit of their sort of script, if you like, that uh, in the book I read that says, oh, you're going to work on road construction? Oh, who, who gives you the tools? Mm. Oh, oh, you bring the tools. Oh, OK. Well, who provides your meals? Oh, you, you provide your meals. Well, who goes on the road? Who has a car? It's quite clever, isn't it? It is. So the the whole point of this was to not just tell people how oh, you're being oppressed, but to make them conclude that they're being oppressed. And they, as a consequence, got really popular within the country itself. So it's more powerful to feel it yourself rather than be told something. Absolutely. So they, they develop a lot of support in the country. And like I say, at the start, the Portuguese don't have a ton of soldiers in the area. So a combination of those things is, uh, and it's a it's a big place. I think the Portuguese were mostly based out of the towns. It's jungly and they, they learned a lot of lessons from the Vietnam. War, so they took a really guerrilla approach to things. So there's a bunch of reasons why they did well, but the long and the short of it is they did very well indeed. But throughout this, actually, Cabral is, seems to have been a very decent guy. He took his position that the fight was against the Portuguese state, not the Portuguese people. So he also tried to focus on military and government targets and not just kill any Portuguese mm. person they came across. Which is, again, clever because you don't want to lose the hearts and minds of people when they start seeing you killing seemingly innocent people. Exactly. And actually, on the subject of hearts and minds, he did at one point have a problem. So one of the problems you have as a revolutionary is you can't really have a very centrally controlled organisation because if they get you, that's it for everyone. You chop off the head and the whole thing falls apart. So what they developed in Portuguese Guinea was much more independent units of people who were just given direction, but they were much more independent and it wasn't a big hierarchy but that in itself poses some challenges because what they found was in some places these local leaders were starting to behave badly and again that hearts and minds thing where these people are sort of aggrandizing themselves rather than saying we're trying to make a better country this was not what cabral wanted 
Yeah, the message gets warped, doesn't it? Exactly. So I guess he had a big meeting and some the, the local leaders would come in and one of them brought his tribal chanter who was there to chant about his heroic deeds. And it was very much a, a sort of local problem. And they also started to display tribal divisions, which Cabral was totally against. He was all about unity. So he realises he has to act on this. So in his own organisation, he decides he has to execute a number of his own leadership. Oh, wow. And say, look, this isn't OK. But he wasn't a naturally vindictive guy. For, for a lot of the people who were being problematic, he advocated rehabilitation, including one person named Innocencio Carney, who was fired for selling a boat, aid, uh, boat engine. So he wasn't executed, but he was basically sacked. But that was a decision that would have very significant consequences for Cabral later on. Now, the fight against the Portuguese continued throughout the 1960s and Cabral continued to be very successful. And bearing in mind, whilst all this was happening, Portugal is going through basically the same experience in all of its other colonies. So you've got Angola, you've got Mozambique, you've got all these places where they are having independent struggles. They're trying to fight on all these fronts. And it turned out that eventually over 40% of the budget of Portugal was being spent on colonial wars in Africa. I mean, that's a lot. That is a lot. And it's not a good number if you're a Portuguese person trying to get on with your life at home, especially no. if you're a Portuguese person who may be lining up to join the army at any point yeah so at the same time as this cabral is on the world stage being active he's meeting global leaders they're having uh, sort of pan-national conferences he even has a, a meeting an audience with pope paul vi who afterwards said we are for the peace the freedom and the national independence of all people particularly the african peoples which for catholic portugal must have been a pretty embarrassing moment yep so to give you a rough idea of how established then the paigc was becoming in 1972 in november it was granted observer status at the un so they're allowed to sit in meetings and that's not a million miles from being recognized as a state is it no that's good so it's all going super super well for Cabral until on 20th January 1973 he's in Conakry in uh, Guinea he was on his way home from a Polish embassy reception with his wife and he's parking up his Volkswagen Beetle and suddenly a military jeep puts its lights full beam on a group of armed men jump out of the vehicle they rush over they grab him and they say right you're coming with us you've got to get in the car one of these men is Innocencio Cani the man Cabral chose not to execute for selling a boat engine Ooh. Cabral resisted and it was Cani who fired the first shot he shot Cabral Cabral dropped to the ground bleeding and Cani orders another man to machine gun Cabral who is killed by a hail of bullets oh no now Canny and his accomplices were at that time members of the PIAGC, but were they also working for the Portuguese Secret Service? Now, there's never been any decisive evidence of it. Lisbon deny everything, but a large number of people say yes, and some of those people include senior members of the Portuguese military. Hmm. So, this was the death of Cabral. And this is a double tragedy in a way, because it did nothing to forestall independence at all. All it really did was deprive the emerging nations of Cabo Verde and Guinea-Bissau of a potentially great leader. This was a really smart guy, He'd proved himself on the world stage he proved himself militarily and this potential head of state was lost to history nevertheless Guinea-Bissau went on to declare its independence in 1973 as I've said before in 1975 Portugal had its own revolution the Carnation Revolution which was a military coup and a civil uprising that put an end to the dictatorship uh, and one of the reasons driving reasons for that was everyone was sick of all this fighting that was going on in the African colonies and almost immediately Portugal started negotiating independence terms with all of its colonies so on the 5th of July 1975 Cabo Verde became independent and within months, all of Portuguese colonies are, are independent. It's an amazing kind of collapse of the Portuguese colonial system. So in June 1975, the people prepared for their first elections as an independent nation. And the choice put before them was to vote for the PAIGC or not. What, what do you mean not? The PAIGC was the only legal party at the time, so it was the only name on the ballot. Oh, wow. So you could tick the box or don't tick the box. <laughs> Those were your options. <laughs> OK. I guess a lot of people tick the box. The list was approved by 95.6% uh, of voters and the turnout was 86.7%, which is pretty impressive for a yes or walk away kind of a vote. Is that still the case now? No, there wasn't a second party on the ballot until 1991, which brings us back to our time period. So in 1991, the Movement for Democracy, or MPD, was created and ran against the PAICV, which had changed its name for various reasons in 1980. And the Movement for Democracy that was formed, ran and won the election. So by way of oppos opposition, that's a pretty impressive track record. And effectively started a two-party democracy that, that runs to this day. So today there are more than two parties, 
but much like the UK or the US, there are two very dominant parties, which are the PAICV and the Movement for Democracy. Okay, wow. Now, sadly, Cabral was not there to see it. Obviously, he'd been killed, but they have not forgotten him, as you can imagine. Today, you can take a flight to Amilcar Cabral International Airport, or indeed a space shuttle. You can stroll through Amilcar Cabral Square in Mindelo or play football in the Amilcar Cabral Cup. Every year there are celebrations and parades on National Day, as the official National Day, which is on the 12th of September, the birthday of Amilcar Cabral, described by the Times as one of the most extraordinary leaders and thinkers of modern Africa. Wow, that's impressive. Amilcar Cabral. And I had never heard of him before I did this. No, how about that? It's remarkable the number of amazing people who have passed me by, it turns out. Yeah, well, that's why we do the show. It is indeed. What was the cutting corners? Well, we'll come back to that. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you're listening, Dursley. Amilcar, my man! How goes the revolution? Well, it is a struggle, Paul, as you know, but we are making progress. That's the spirit. And speaking of progress, I've had a brilliant idea. Oh, have you? Yeah. Have you ever thought about your image? My image? I, I don't think that's important. I'm a guerrilla leader, Paul, not a model. I think about the struggle, the cause, the people. Yeah, 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 yeah. The struggle, the cause, the people. Of course, of course, of course. Very important. But have you ever considered merchandising? Merchandising? Yeah, Look at this t-shirt. Well, that's Che Guevara. Exactly. Che Guevara. Revolutionary icon, t-shirt superstar. Just imagine this, but with your face. So you want to put my face on a t-shirt? Exactly. It's a goldmine, Amilcar. A goldmine. I'm I'm not sure it's really me. Amilcar, baby. It's not just t-shirts. It's mugs. It's posters. It's bobbleheads. It just all seems a little bit, I don't know, frivolous, I guess. Oh, look, it's all the rage now. Trust me. This is about the struggle, Paul. It's not about fashion statements or merchandising. Well, not yet, but it could be. Edgy, cool and rebellious. That's what sells. I'm a revolutionary leader, Paul. I'm not trying to sell something. Exactly. And that is why it's perfect. It's authentic. I I don't want to be authentic. I just want to run the revolution. Our fight is for the people. Absolutely. And what better way to raise awareness than to have your face plastered all over the world? I don't... don't don't really see how a t-shirt with my face on it aids our cause. Well, it's all about visibility, isn't it? We get your face out there and bam, more people know about the cause. <sighs> well, I, I suppose if we make profits and we use those profits to fund our fight. <laughs> well, I mean, there are costs, Amokar, you know, production and distribution and my fees. Hang on, your fees? Well, I mean, this genius doesn't come for free. Oh, I see. Well, look, how about this, Paul? We make a t-shirt with your face on it with a caption underneath saying, Capitalist chill. Well, uh, no, I, I don't know about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we could donate all the profits from that to our cause. It's the perfect balance, don't you think? Well, uh, I, mean, I suppose, but I... Excellent. I look forward to wearing your Capitalist chill t-shirt. Right. Uh, look, perhaps we could talk about this some more? No need. The decision is made. Right. Good work, Paul. See you later. Uh, yeah, uh, bye. You ready for your next section, Ryan? I really am. This is called The Sounds of Cabo Verde. Okay. Okay, so when I was researching Cabo Verde, the theme that came up again and again and again was music. This is a really musical nation. Now, 1991, again, it's the same year of the first democratic election. It was also the year of release of an album called Mar Azul, or Blue Sea. This featured a small band playing a kind of sad ballad that is particular to Cabo Verde called Morna. Morna. You could argue that Morna is the sound of Cabo Verde. In fact, it's such a significant part of the nation that in December 2019, it was recognised by UNESCO as an intangible cultural heritage of humanity. Oh, my goodness. And is this spelt Morna as in like somebody attending a funeral? Uh, it's, it sounds like it, but no, it's M-O-R-N-A. So it's believed that this originates from songs sung by women who were brought as slaves from West Africa who would improvise songs talking about their day-to-day life, uh, okay. sometimes like satire or just commentary about what's going on. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not really clear where exactly in Cabo Verde that Morna originated. One researcher said that basically, whichever island you go to, the residents will tell you with great confidence, yes, it definitely started here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which yeah. makes it quite difficult to pin down as a consequence. And uh, <laughs> But over time, the sound developed and it becomes a music of the people it is a really mournful sound so it's a well-named music it's usually sung in the creole language because it's the people's music it commonly deals in themes of love and loss in particular this thing called sodade 
Saudade is, it's one of those words that people say is untranslatable, but it's uh, it's a, a feeling of love for the homeland and the sea and mourning for what's lost and a hope to someday return, which is of particular relevance to a people who have this long history of travel and leaving home to find work and to survive. Mm. In fact, one famous mourner songwriter said, we sing with water in our eyes, we dance whilst our soul is grieving. Wow, that's really emotional. It's really, it's a really sad sounding song. So uh, back to our 1991 album, Ma Azul. The singer of this song and this album, Ma Azul, is a woman called Cesaria Evora. Okay. Cesaria Evora was born in 1941 in Mindelo. This is uh, the port station, a refueling point for transatlantic shipping on the island of Sao Vicente. And at the age of 15 years old, Evora had been orphaned and she was already earning money singing in bars. So she's clearly got the backstory for this kind of mournful singing as well. But her amazing voice meant she was soon singing on local radio stations and on Portuguese cruise ships that were stopping in town. Now, she became quite popular and one of the things that made her stand out was she was notable for performing without shoes on. She was she kind of grew up barefoot, so it was what she was used to, but it eventually became her trademark. And in <laughs> fact, her first album was called The Barefoot Diva. Yeah, really? That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I don't wear shoes either when I record this podcast. I'm like that, but with trousers. <laughs> Now, uh, eventually she was invited to sing in Portugal, where she was spotted by a Parisian musician of Cape Verdean descent, another expat, who signed her to his little label. And it was this label that, after a couple of initial starts, produced this album, Mar Azul, in 1991. And this album was kind of a breakthrough. It brought her media attention and international record labels started to get interested. So her next album in 1992 was called Miss Perfumado. This was a hit. This was big. This sold 300,000 copies just in France. <laughs> wow, okay. She's moving up and on from bars and cruise ships. So She's a pop star. She, she is. She does become quite a star. She sets out touring the world and she becomes one of Africa's most successful musicians. It's great. It's brilliant, isn't it? But she always sang in Creole and she sang of Cabo Verde. There's One of her songs has these lines, which I thought was really nice. Cabo Verde is a broad-leaved tree planted in the middle of the Atlantic. Its branches have spread out throughout the world. Each leaf is a beloved son who has gone far, venturing abroad in search of a better and more dignified future. Now, she was known as the Barefoot Diva, but she wasn't a diva by all accounts. She was very down to earth and she did like her rum and cigarettes. And apparently her shows would always include a short instrumental break while she would have a drink and a cigarette and uh, <laughs> then carry on with the show. Good for her. That's rock and roll lifestyle. It is, isn't it? And so it went from 1995 to 2009. She released albums and toured. She becomes wealthy, but she never lets it go to her head. She always retained her home in her beloved Cabo Verde. Now, unfortunately, in 2005, she began to get a bit ill. She had a stroke and a heart attack and in december 2011 she died oh no yeah she died leaving her fans with a sense of melancholy a sense of mourning for what is lost a sense you might say of sodade and Mm. sodade is also the name of her most famous song so let's have a little listen this is it the queen of mourner the barefoot diva cesaria evora singing sodade Esse caminho passando bem Quem mostrava esse caminho longe Quem mostrava esse caminho longe Esse caminho passando bem isn't that beautiful? Well, I know what I'm going to be downloading and listening to this week. <laughs> that was fantastic. Um, Genuinely, I loved that. That was great. It's really amazing. Really moving. It? And it's really, really moving stuff. And that was Cesaria Evora singing Sodad. And uh, it's available on Spotify and various other locations. <laughs> Now, Ryan, the music of Cape Verde isn't all about gazing longingly to see and wondering about your lost love. Well, that's a shame. There isn't, uh, well, there is another kind of music called Funana, okay. also uh, derived from and signature to Cape Verde. This is a traditional music of the people, again, and actually before 1975 and independence, it was actually banned by the Portuguese for being subversive, which I think <laughs> is uh, colonial for too African. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> now, Funana is still played today. There is one band, for example, keeping the music alive called Grupo Pilon and their drummer Tony Furtado kindly agreed to speak to me. No way! Yeah, yeah. So I asked him to start by introducing himself and the band. Hello, my name is Tony Furtado, drummer of the band Group Pilon. I joined the band in 1988, two years after its formation. Uh, the band was formed in Luxembourg in the year 1986 and by a young teenager 
were children of the first Capverdian people who came to settle in Luxembourg on the 70s. So yeah, so again, more of these emigre Cape Verdeans or Cabo Verdeans in, from Luxembourg in this case. But yeah, they're keeping the music alive. Uh, so in the interest of cutting corners, I thought, why should I do my research when I could just get Tony to do the work for me? Yeah. So I asked him about what Funana music was. Uh, the Funana originating from the island of Santiago, the most populated, was prohibited during the time of the Portuguese colonizers because it was considered subversive, because it was played by peasants using a diatonic accordion and a piece of iron that marked the writings with a knife. And the singers used the funana to recount their daily lives and also to denounce abuse of power. So, yeah, so the signature sound is an accordion, a diatonic accordion, and the, the rhythm was beaten out by scraping a knife or a spoon on an iron bar. And uh, it was the music of the peasants, and as he says, it was uh, originally prohibited by the Portuguese government. Wow. Why not take the music away from the poor people too? Yeah, yeah Why no, not? Like it's not rough enough for them yet. Let's <laughs> make things even worse. Yeah. So I, I also asked, obviously music evolved, so I asked him how the music of Cabo Verde was evolving and how Funana was changing. The Funana was only able to express itself freely after the independence of uh, the Cap Verde on July 5, 1975, with the introduction of uh, electric instruments in the compositions. For that, uh, we must thank to a musical genius, Carlos Alberto Martins, nicknamed Cachas. He gave uh, his title of nobility to the funara. So after independence, the music was then legitimate and allowed. And uh, as he says, the introduction of electric instruments started to give it a more modern sound. And uh, some of the traditional sounds were made a bit more, uh, I would say, popish almost with the introduction of the electric instruments. Music evolves, right? Exactly. So, and I asked him, you know, how is it? Okay, that was after independence, but what happens between then and now? And this is what he said. In the 80s and 90s, there was a strong evolution of uh, Cabo-Verdean music, maintaining the rhythm and the tradition of uh, Cabo Verde, with uh, many bands formed in Europe, in Portugal, France, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and uh, in Cabo Verde, the name of the band is uh, Tulipa Negra, in Portugal, uh, Cabo Verde show in France, uh, Grupo Pilar in Luxembourg, the band Liberty, uh, Rebelados and Gino and the Perfect on the Netherlands. So there's this whole sort of generation of expat and Cabo Verdean resident Cabaverians keeping this music alive in the the eighties and the nineties, and uh, Grupo Pilon is one of those, uh, and he named a few others there. And it, it's interesting how much of this was the di- diaspora keeping this alive. And uh, again, that takes us to the eighties and nineties. So let's see what he says about uh, the process of music in Cabo Verde between now and today. Uh, currently, it's uh, complicated for uh, Cabaverdian music. The new generation have taken the power on the media. They evolved from rap, hip hop, Afrobeat, and uh, not in the tradition of uh, Cabaverdian rhythm. There is an uh, exception with uh, Elid Almeida, who keep the essence of the Cabaverdian music. Uh, is the owner of composition. For now, it's uh, complicated. No coincidence that that time period is where the internet starts to kick in and uh, we start to see globalisation of different cultures and mixing of things like music. Yeah, I, th- I get the distinct impression that Tony is not uh, particularly keen on the Afrobeat rap hip-hop <laughs> influences on Cabo Verdean music. But I think it's interesting to see that there's still actually other people you can name who are keeping the tradition alive. So I think the diversity still seems to be there. I always admire these people that try and keep old traditions 
traditions alive um, because you know there is merit in particularly in old forms of music like that it's wonderful to hear I'm glad that it doesn't just disappear entirely I, I guess I only agree if the music is worth keeping and we can find out because let's check out the music of Grupo Pilon now for the listeners you can find them on YouTube and on Spotify under at Grupo Pilon that's G-R-U-P-O-P-I-L-O-N but also they kindly gave us permission to play their music here so here is some subversive Funana music courtesy of Tony Furtado and Grupo Pilon. Subversiveness is fun. Party beat, Ryan. Yeah, Party that was great. Beat. Any idea what they were saying? Uh, I heard a bit of it. It was Vamonos something something Cabo Verde. So something like let's go to Cabo Verde would be my guess. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Sounds great. Hey, guess what? I've only managed to score tickets for Subversive Fest. No way, me too. I love how subversive the music is. Yeah, I mean, it's the music of the people, isn't it? Stick it to the man, yeah? Absolutely, brother. I even bought a Fanata album the other day. Fanata? Now that's subversive. It totally undermines the oppressive regime. Yeah, I'm going all out, too. I'm going to wear my Amilcar Cabral t-shirt. Oh, that's killer. So subversive. Do you hear the lineup though? In- Instruments of Insurgency is playing, Insurrectionists, Sons of the Revolution, and musical Mars. Amazing. It's going to be a blast. Really sticking it to the man. Yeah, stick it to him, brother. Right on. All right. Anyway, lunch hour's over. Back to the grind. Yep, the messies aren't going to oppress themselves, are they? <laughs> All right, shut it. You move along. This is unlawful assembly. Failure to disperse will result in arrest. Yeah, we're on your side, people, but also you're under arrest. Uh, now, Ryan, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I've sort of ignored the rules of the podcast and left out the cutting of corners in my stories. Yes, entirely. But I say to you, I refer to you, my first definition, to do something in the easiest, cheapest or quickest way, often by ignoring rules or leaving something out. So if that's not the very <laughs> definition of cutting corners, Ryan, I don't know what is. Who am I to judge? So there it is, Ryan. <laughs> cutting corners. I've cut the corner of talking about cutting corners. Are you, are you pleased with yourself? <laughs> I, <laughs> I was the audacity of it that I think might carry me through. <laughs> well, who am I to judge, Peter? There is only one man who we can ask <laughs> to gauge whether or not that, that, that counts. But, I feel uh, this is a risk. It's a risk, I'll acknowledge. I, I, I love the risk-taking. <laughs> I did anticipate something like this, to be honest. <laughs> I thought maybe this was going to be a half-hour episode. <laughs> But I love it. Well done, Pete. You've showed us some fascinating sides to uh, Cabo Verde, which uh, really, from a place that I knew the name of wrongly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I now know... The one thing I knew was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I now know a lot. And also, I have some seriously cool beats to take away. Yeah, thank you very much, Grupo Pilon and Cesaria Evora. That's right. What an amazing episode, Pete. I loved it. I want to go. It's an, another... I mean, this always happens, but I really want to go to Cabo Verde now. Yeah, me too. Let's sign up with NASA. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Just a short training session and we'll be in space ready for our emergency landing. Poking with your lava stick at the control panel, trying to make something go wrong. <laughs> there you are peter well done congratulations another episode down but the eyes of the audience swivel in their ears <laughs> is that what happens i thought their ears yeah. were gonna swivel no, they... towards their eyes <laughs> no, no. their ears swivel in their sockets towards me this time for it is my turn to be desolated it is indeed so should we wheel it out get her ready here we go okay i'm gonna switch it on okay are you ready i'm ready pull in the lever now your country is Scotland. That's good. I like that. That's solid. Okay, are you ready for your time period? Of course. Your time period is 1600 to 1650, the beginning of the 17th century. Okay, sure. Yeah, stuff happened then, for sure. And your topic is... <laughs> what? What? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't even remember putting this in. <laughs> Go on. What is it? Your topic is excrement. <laughs> excrement. <laughs> excrement. As in poop. I guess. Okay. Excrement in Scotland in the early 1600s. Yeah. I mean, people poop, right? They are, it's a human universal, so I think you're going to be okay. All right. Excrement in Scotland. Here we come. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Okay, well, look, there you go. That is our show for this week. So thank you all for listening. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that we've talked about on this show, or just to say hello, you can reach out to us through our website at hhepodcast.com or by email at peteandryan at hhepodcast.com. Like the magnificent Kate, who wrote to us to tell us to keep up the good work. Thank you, Kate. It means a lot to us when we hear from you guys. Yeah, that's right. And if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can find us at hhepodcast. If you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert every time we post extra content facts we didn't use photos from the show other bits and bobs like links to the music we featured today yes indeedy and we are going to be back again soon with the verdict but until then a huge thanks to Grupo Pilon thanks guys that was awesome and that's it I guess all that's left to say is you've been listening to History Happened Everywhere. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. How you doing, buddy? You okay? Oh, yeah, I'm good, thanks. You sure, man? Because, you know, I'm here to listen. Well, that's a nice thing to say, mate, but yeah, I'm actually totally fine. Yeah. You know, life can be tough, though, can't it? Yeah, it can really grind you down. Well, yeah, I guess it can, but right now I'm I'm doing pretty good, actually. Sure. But, you know, I am here for you. If you if you want to share, you know, any bad stuff, really, anything, anything at all. Well, that's, that's kind of you, mate, but there's nothing to share. I'm fine. I'm, I'm enjoying the podcast. I'm having a good time. I got a tax rebate the other day, actually, and I had an amazing breakfast this morning. Cool, cool, cool. But, uh, I, I mean, I bet your love life's a bit of a mess, though, isn't it, eh? Well, no, no, actually. It was my girlfriend who made me the breakfast that was so good. I'm, I'm really into it. I think this is really going well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, what with all the news and the politics, I mean, it's depressing, isn't it? I guess if you think about it, it is, but there's good in the world as well. Every sunrise is a new day, new opportunities. It's a good place to be. Oh, you just kicked me. Why'd you do that? Oh, my shin. Somebody kicked me and now I'm in so much pain. Why would you do that, Ryan? It's a horrible thing to do to a friend. My friend hates me. He kicks me all the time. Ryan, what are you doing? Well, that barefoot lady from Cape Verde, right? She made a fortune writing depressing songs. So I thought I'd do the same, but I needed some inspiration. Well, by kicking me in the shins? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I-, I needed some lyrics, you see. Oh, Ryan, you, you can't just kick someone in the shins to be a mournerite. Also, you are untalented. You can't write lyrics, you're tone deaf, and nobody wants to hear you sing. Oh, you're helping me by making me feel depressed. No, 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 I really mean it. You are a terrible singer. Thanks, man. I really appreciate this. That's not at all... Oh, never mind. Just do what you want. I'm sure it'll go fine, whatever. Oh, stop My friend, kicking me! God, you're such an idiot! Sing oh, God, you're such an idiot! Perfect. Do not try this at home.